We come before you, we ask that you lead us in our study today, have us learn what you would have us from all of this, and guide and as we worship you through the word. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah 13. Verse 1. On that day that they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Amorites and the Moabites should not come into the congregation of, the, of God forever, because they had not met the children of Israel in, with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them, Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated the, from Israel all the mixed multitude. So we're going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, we've got Nehemiah and the, the people, remember a couple chapters ago, they read the, read the law and they celebrated. They had the loud, loud cry and worship that was heard afar off. And then during the time of reading, they, they read about the Amorites and Moabites were not allowed to come into the congregation. And this is in Deuteronomy 28, which we'll take a quick look at. Uh, I'll just read it here. 28, and it came in Deuteronomy 28, verse, starting at verse 1, and it came to pass that you shall hearken diligently unto the voice of your God and, and observe to do all that he commands, which I commanded you this day, that the Lord your God will set, set you on high above all nations. I think I'm reading the wrong. Deuteronomy 23. Don't say, that didn't make any sense. Oh. 23. He that is wounded in stones or has his privates cut off shall not enter in the congregation. The bastard shall not enter in the congregation of the Lord. Even unto ten generations shall he not enter into the Lord, the congregation. An Amorite and a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to their tenth generation shall they not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you not with bread and water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beror, of Bethor, of Mesopotamia, to curse you. So we, we're having uh, read, studied that in numbers. We're getting ready to go into the, stu the, the study about Balaam being hired by Balak to curse the Israelites and how he blessed them three times, how the Lord first off told him not to go, but he, want, he was wanting to be greedy of the money that they were going to give him. So he kept begging God. He finally set him go, let him go, attempted, uh, set him up to be killed by the angel of the Lord. The donkey kept swerving off and story about the donkey that speaks. <laughs> and we love that story because it just shows us that God can use anything or anybody <laughs> to preach. If he, can, if he can talk to him through a donkey, he can talk <laughs> through anybody who wants to speak. Uh, so but the, the, here it's saying that the Amorites and the Moabites did this. And in, in Numbers, uh, we're told that it was the king of Moab. But the Amorites also told him they weren't allowed to go. They weren't going to give him permission to come through their through their territory. They had to go around a long ways around about. And we, I bring that up because we don't really think about it, but there were what they called highways back in those days. And they were dirt roads, basically. They were dirt paths. And when you traveled through a country, you were to stay on the roads. 
pretty much like you're supposed to do in America. You know, you're not supposed to go out and go <laughs> driving across the, you know, you can't just go out and drive, drive across the desert. Number one, it's not safe. You might just drive yourself right into a, you know, a big crevice or a ditch or, and plus it belongs to somebody. <laughs> and in those days, kings owned these territories and there were roads through the deserts. And they were the safe routes, they led to the water, they led to, they led, you know, led you on a, what was public, public property. And so we had those things and the Amorites were not, did not allow the Jews to cross their country. And so they went around them, and then the Moabites got even worse. They hired somebody to curse them, and God said, go ahead and, take, <laughs> go ahead and fight them. So, but the problem is they're still around. They're still around, and they're, and they're seeing how they're supposed to separate themselves. And, God and, and they, this is not just God speaking to them at this time. They just read it in his book that you're not supposed to have mixed marriages, and they got rid of the people. And the story of Balaam is in Numbers 23 and 24, which we're getting ready to do on Wednesday nights here soon. And they, they separated. They go, okay, God said we're not supposed to be mixed. We're going to separate. They've been disobedient. Now, this is actually the third time in a very short period of time that they've separated some. Ezra made them separate themselves. <laughs> Nehemiah made them separate themselves. And then Nehemiah went away for a while. He was called back to King Artaxerxes, and that was... Uh, back in chapter, uh, what was it, chapter 10, he was called back to Artaxerxes, and then he came back, and he found that all the things he corrected amongst the people, they were doing again. And, I, and we're going to see that he wasn't a very happy camper about that. You know, he's, he's seeing them go backwards in their, in, their, in their relationship because he was gone. And you know, it kind of irritates him because he's probably getting pretty old himself at this point and saying, there's going to be a time when I'm not here. And it doesn't say that he said that, but I'm sure this is what he's thinking because this is what any leader would think. Okay, I left for, for a short period of time and you went backwards. What's going to happen when I die? You've got to get yourselves following God on your own. And this is what every leader, any church, Bible study, group of people, as a disciple people, your ultimate goal is that if and when I leave you still go forward with God, that you're not so dependent on, on the leader. And it's natural to be dependent on a leader for, at first. Children are very dependent on their, on their parents. But if they're still depending on their parents at 30, 40, 50 years old, that's bad. And the sad thing is we're seeing that in this day and age where some of our kids are 30, 40, 50 years old, still absolutely dependent on their parents. And it's not natural and it's not good. And the same thing for spiritual leaders. Our, our goal is that the people we're training, the people we're, that are learning under us, ultimately the best thing is for them to do better than we are. Than we are. They get better, they get more advanced in the teaching. They get, they get to learn their, on their own and not be so dependent upon being taught. And that is the ultimate goal for every teacher, good teacher, to get their people to be independent. Not independent of God, but independent of them. And very dependent upon God and the Spirit, but that they will become teachers, that they will become instructors, that they will say, I've got to keep going. I, I've got to keep going. And it's something I've seen over the years. The standards keep getting higher. We all want our kids to do better than we do. Financially, home, job. 
do we think about them being spiritually better off than we are? And that is where I've always wanted my kids. I want my kids to be, you know, I give them a starting place. I hope they go way beyond anything that I've ever taught them or experienced. And they get deeper in God's word and more following God in a stronger and mighty way. And then they can teach, if they ever decide to have grandkids, <laughs> give me some grandkids, they can teach their children and hopefully their children go deeper than they do so that we are getting a advancing of the kingdom and not a withdrawal. And here we're seeing Jeremiah, uh, Nehemiah de dealing with people that are gone backwards. He was only gone for a short period of time and they went backwards. And they're separating themselves again now for the third time in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and since, the, since they've returned. And then now they're getting ready, but this time it's them. They're the one that's separated. They're not been ordered to separate. Ezra ordered them, and the first time Nehemiah did, and now it, it seems that all they did was read the Bible and say, oh, we need to. We need to get right. So this is actually a good thing. It's bad that they remix re themselves, but it's a good thing that they're doing it on their own. They're, they're growing up. Verse 4, And before this, Elishib the priest, having oversight of the chamber of the house of God, was allied to Tobiah. Does everybody remember who Tobiah is? Okay, remember at the very beginning as they're building the wall, Samballat and Tobiah were enemies. And here we have Elishib the priest making a room in the temple for Tobiah. The enemy of Israel is being put up in a room in the temple. And who does the rooms in the temple belong to? The Levites. the Levites. So the enemy of Israel is taking up room that the Levites, taking a room that the Levites should be possessing. And it's going to be even worse as we look at this. In verse 5, And he prepared for him a great chamber where aforetime they had laid the meat of the offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes of corn, the new wine, the oil that was commanded to be given to the Levites, the singers, the porters, and the offerings of the priest. But in this time... Was I not at Jerusalem for, for in the, two, the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem and understood the evil that Elishib did for Tobiah in preparing him a room, a chamber in the courts of the house of God. All right, so we see Tobiah, an enemy. <laughs> okay, and if you remember, he gave him, they gave Sambalat and Tobiah gave him a really hard time. Remember, they're the ones that made the report to the king saying, these are rebellious people. You've got to stop them from building the temple because they're going to rebel. And the king sent back a message saying, you know, he had them look for that, and they found that they were rebellious people and they'd been conquered. He sent back, quit working. They sent back, well, King, king Artaxerxes, you told us to come on, you know, and he looked a little deeper into the records and said, oh, yes, go, go ahead and start working again. Okay, all of this going on. They're the ones that harassed them as they're building it, you know, tried to get the people to stop working with, you know, with all the accusations, you know, look at this wall, you know, look at this wall that they're building. Even a fox would knock it down. You remember all those things that we covered that's, you know, but, uh, you know, they really made life difficult. And now we have Elishib, who it says he's allied with him. It literally means he's close kin. And we're going to find out that he's a, his son, Mary, is a son-in-law to Tobiah. <laughs> so his son married Tobiah's daughter. So he's really tied in with Tobiah. They're family. Okay? And... So he's bringing him in. He's bringing the enemy of Israel 
not only just into Israel, not into Jerusalem, but into the temple of God. You see how evil this, this picture is? And this, and this dumb priest <laughs> sees no problem with it. He sees no problem with being, bringing the enemy of, of them into the temple. That doesn't make sense to me, but it made sense to him somehow. <laughs> you know, this put Tobiah right in the center of everything that was going on, and, you know, and, I'm, and he was very tight with Sambelot, the other enemy. I can guarantee messages went back and forth. You know, this is what they're doing. This is, you know, t so the enemies outside knew what was going on inside. That's a pretty serious event. And they gave him room that used to be a storehouse. And they said it was a large chamber, so he's been given a very large place to live. And, it was, and what did they store there? Just about everything that was given by the Israelites. The tithes, the offerings, the, the frankincense, all the stuff that goes to the use of the temple was moved out of this room and given, and the room given to Tobiah. So it wasn't an insignificant space. It wasn't like they gave him a closet or a small, you know, small studio. They gave him a very large place to live. And then it's just this little footnote in verse 6 that goes back to chapter 10. I wasn't even, Jeru I wasn't even in Jerusalem when all of this happened. I had gone back to talk to the king. And again, remember we talked about how this trip to Babylon, or Babylon was not a short trip. Uh, you couldn't, number one, you couldn't go straight line there because you crossed desert with no road. You had to go north and then you had to go across. It took three to nine months to get this trip back. So he had been gone for at least a year, if not more. And he's saying, I was gone. And when I got back, and then it says in verse 7, I came back to Jerusalem and understood the evil. Understood the evil. He saw the very enemy that he had. And remember, Tobiah has been, been really troublesome for Nehemiah. That would be, I can't remember, think about what kind of uh, enemy that would be. That would be like seeing uh, bin Laden before he got killed being given a, a place in the White House. <laughs> Okay, we're going to put you right in the center of everything. You're going to know everything that's going on, and, and you're going to be an honored, <laughs> you know, you're our enemy, but you're our honored guest. <laughs> Again, think of a new, new enemy, you know, somebody from ISIS or something now, you know. But, uh, but that's what we're seeing on here. The enemy put into the center of everything, and most of the people not seeing a problem with it. And Nehemiah comes back and goes, what is this guy doing here? He, he was causing trouble and probably still is causing trouble. And I love that we look at this in verse 8. And it came and it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household, st household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. He went in and forcibly evicted him. <laughs> With no notice, obviously. <laughs> he found out Tobiah was in there. He took people into, the, into that room grabbed all of his stuff, and it says that he cast forth. This, this word for cast is force, you know, gets that forcible. Now, I don't even think he was caring about what he did to his stuff. He tossed, probably taught, had it tossed out of the temple. And I don't think they carefully moved it. And I would believe that because Tobiah was such a terrible for him that not only did he cast him out of the tabernacle and the, te the temple, probably threw his stuff 
out of, out of Jerusalem. <laughs> Probably through its out of the outside of outside the walls, uh, because he did not want to buy it inside Jerusalem because of how much trouble he was. So I picture, my picture is, it doesn't say this, but my picture is they picked it up out of the, the chamber, walked it to the nearest <laughs> gate, and tossed it out the gate. <laughs> and said, Tobiah, you're not, <laughs> you're not welcome in this city, because they, they weren't welcome. And you remember, part of the problem that we had when they were building the temple was they got mad at them because they were not allowed to have anything to do with the temple. Because, again, these people were considered half-breeds. They're the ones that had stayed. Remember, we talked about this. They're the ones that stayed in Israel, the poorest of the poor, when everybody else was marched out of Jerusalem and they went, and Babylon sent other people into there, uh, uh, into, the, into there, and they interbreeded with the people that were moved in. So as far as the Jews coming back are concerned, these really aren't Jews. You know, they're considered half-breeds or worse. And... Even in Jesus' days, this group became the Samaritans. They didn't worship. The Jews wouldn't go through their territory if you could at all help it. If you weren't in real need of speed, you went to the, ocean, to the, to the Mediterranean or you followed the Jordan up to get to the northern part of the Israel. You did not go through Samaria unless you absolutely had to. Did you talk about that a while Yeah, we talked about that. <laughs> yeah, it's a kind of review. Uh, but that's who the Samaritans became. The, this group became the Samaritans. And because they were not allowed to worship in Jerusalem, they set up their own religious system in their area, and they basically said, this is, this is where we worship. And if you remember when Jesus went to talk to the, the woman at the well in Samaria, the Samaritan woman at the well, she goes, well, our people say we worship on this hill, which is in Samaria and your people say you have to worship in Jerusalem and Jesus said there's going to come a time when you worship in the spirit and it doesn't matter where you worship and but all of this has its roots in the time that we're talking about all that bitterness has its roots in the time we're talking about right now in this in the book I'm just trying to bring us back into history and understanding and so they cast everything out and then it says I commanded that they cleanse the chamber and thither brought I again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. So he says, clean this room out. <laughs> Sanctify it. it. It's supposed to have never been unsanctified. And again, that takes us back into Numbers and Deuteronomy and everything. That The only ones that are supposed to have anything to do with the tabernacle and, or the temple in this case are the Levites. And then here they were bringing an outsider that's not even Jews, Jewish, an enemy of the Jews, and they brought him right into a chamber in the temple, belonging to the Israelites, uh, to the Levites. Major, major issue here. So he's having the room cleansed, ceremonially cleansed, re-sanctified, probably anointed it with oil and all the stuff that went, went forth with it, and then he restored it to its old use. Get the frankincense and the oils and the ties and get them back in this big room, this big storehouse. Verse 10, And I perceived that the portion of the Levites had not been given to them, for the Levites and the singers that were, did the work were fled every one to his field. Then contended I with the rulers and, and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. 
Then brought all Judah the tithe of the corn and the new wine and the oil into the treasuries. And I made treasurers over the treasury, Selemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, uh, and the Levites, Padiah, and next to them were Hanah the son of Zakur and the son of Mataniah, for they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O God, concerning this, and wipe out, wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God, for the offices and for the offices thereof. So not only had they gotten rid of the storeroom, and if you remember in Numbers, Numbers 11, we taught, we just taught on how all the tithes that came in belonged to the Levites. And then the Levites tithed of their, tithe, of, their, of their portion to give to the priest, and then the priest tithed out of his portion to give to God. So here we see a violation of Numbers 18. He'd have everything, he had everything, he had the Levites coming in, they were getting their, getting their portion of, you know, the, of every, all the tithes of it. And he comes back from this trip and finds out that the room that he's supposed to be stored in has been given to the enemy of Israel, kicks him out, puts the stuff back in, and then finds out that the Levites haven't even been getting paid. <coughs> and they did what everybody would do if they didn't get paid. They stopped working. <laughs> they go, if I'm not getting paid, I'm going back to my fields and I'm going to grow some food so I can support my family. And that is what it says. He found out that they hadn't been getting their pay, basically, their, the tithe, their portion of the tithe. And it says they each went back to, they fled every man to his own field. And remember, there's just these little cities that they've been given, and there's very small fields, but they're going, well, a little bit is better than nothing. And I don't blame them. Everybody would do the same thing. I'm not getting paid. I'm going to go. <laughs> I, my family has to eat. I have to eat. My family has to eat. I'm going to go. So Nehemiah comes back from this trip, finds out that the Levites aren't doing their job in the temple, and if they're not doing their job in the temple, the priests probably aren't doing their job in the temple, because if the Levites aren't getting their money to give to the priests, that means the priests aren't getting any money, and so the priests probably aren't even in the temple. Uh, you, know, you, see the, you see the problem that's developing here. He, he leaves, the temple is operating, they've got walls around the city, he comes back, and everything is in chaos. And his answer to that was, he goes to the leaders and going, why is God's house forsaken? Why have we not done what we're supposed to do? Why aren't we giving God his due? Part of it is probably that Tobiah's there. Okay, Tobiah is out there and he's, he's, he would be the mouthpiece for Sam Bellet in Jerusalem bringing, bringing propaganda and bad news. Okay. And he's going to go, well, you know, you can just picture it. You know how that works. You know, it's, he's out there saying, you know, well, why would you give to God? You know, it's no big deal. You didn't give to God for 70 years that you were in captivity. Why would you be doing it now? You know, just the little whispering out there and how it gets expanded and all of a sudden people are stopping. And again, nobody had any brains enough to keep him out of the very center of worship. And that is someplace you don't bring an enemy into the center of your worship and let him live there. It'd be bad enough just letting him come into the worship, but they're actually letting him live where they're coming all the time. He just goes and gets up in the morning, goes out and starts talking to everybody. And bad-mouthing Nehemiah, bad-mouthing God, bad-mouthing the, the righteous people. 
and you can only take that so long before it really affects people. <coughs> and they abandon God. They abandon God, at least giving to God. And if they're not coming to the temple, they're not listening to God's word, they're not listening to his teaching, and for all practical purposes, he's destroyed their religious system. I'm sure there was a handful that kept coming, they kept giving their offerings and all of that, but not enough to, to say that people were really worshiping the way they're supposed to. So he contended with the rulers and say, say, why is God forsaken? And then it says, I gathered them, and this is talking about the Levites, he gathered them together and set them back in their place. So he says, hey guys, get back here to doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah, so he sent out the message, Levites return back. We're going to make sure I've, I've cleaned out the room. We're going to get our offerings. We're going to start doing what we're supposed to. And then in verse 12 it says, Then brought all of Judah the tithe of the corn, the new wine, and the new oil and into the treasuries. And this is the same thing that happens in churches. If people are not confident that their tithes and offerings go to support religious activity of the church, they'll stop giving. And you see it all the time uh, you know, in churches where people just don't feel like the church is giving God's message. And the attitude is, why should I give to this, this activity if it's not going to be spiritual? And we see that on the flip side, when people are seeing that the church is moving forward, gospel's going out, the message is going out, reaching out, the ties tend to go up because people are confident that what their money's being used for what God <laughs> wants it to be used for. And we see that here. He reinstituted the treasury and said, I'm gonna put new leaders over the treasury, and the result was the people gave. And they gave their offerings again. And then he says he changed the actual treasurers, the people who distributed the money. And I love what he says because he put in multiple people, and this is always good for any, especially church, that it's not just one, or one person, sometimes not even two people, but the, a group of people know what's going on with the money. Very important, and sometimes smaller and harder in a small church to have that happen. But the bigger your church is, the more people that you want looking at the funds so that they can say yes we know that they're being spent correctly and here he put let's see what is it one two three four five people in charge of the money and specifically they said for they were counted faithful the people knew that they were honest people they were going to use things the way it was supposed to be used they were going to distribute the money to the Levites and the Levites would get their, their income. And then his little little prayer, God, remember me, and don't wipe out my good. <laughs> Basically saying, don't wipe out the good that I did because of the inability of the people to follow. <laughs> and he says, I'm doing, what I need, I'm doing what I need to do. And I think part of this prayer was also, God, help them to make better decisions uh, because we know that he's getting older. We don't know how long he spent in the service of the king as a cupbearer, but he was one of the king's favorites. So that was a while. We know that he spent some 30 years in service in Jerusalem. So, you know, this guy's getting into his 50s or 60s at least. <laughs> at least. And so he's probably starting to realize, my time here is coming to an end. I, God, I need these people to start making decisions on their own that are going to honor you. And all leaders get to that point where, wow, my time is, my time is short. No, no matter what that is, my time is short. 
you start seeing that in end point where retirement's coming or you're not going to be able to serve and you're saying god please get them to your ultimate goal is for them to to be able to lead themselves and or bring you had to bring in another leader but then you're still in the same spot you know when the leader disappears you want your people to be able to go forward on their own and this is where he's at god look what happened i was gone less than it i was gone you know just over a year or two years whatever it was and look what happened here and his prayer is god please don't let my time be wasted i've been showing them i've been leading them don't let them go off the wrong direction verse 15 and in those days i saw in judah some trading wine treading wine presses on the sabbath and bringing in sheaves and laid at donkeys also as also wine grapes and figs and all manner of burdens which they brought into jerusalem on the sabbath day and I testified against them in that in the day wherein they sold vittles, and dwelt and there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold them on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said, What evil thing is it that you do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring this evil upon us and upon the city? Yet you bring in more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And some of my servants set I at the gates that there should be no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said, Why lodge you about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you from the time, and from that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. So now he's cleaning up the Sabbath. <laughs> and what was happening is people were working on the Sabbath. And for the Jews, God said over and over, the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between you and me. Now, it is a sign to the Jews. It's not a sign beyond the Jews. But Nehemiah comes back, and they're not keeping the Sabbath. They're, they're, they're bringing it in, and, and even more, he's got people coming in from Tyre, which Tyre is over on the, on the Mediterranean. And so they were getting their fish caught, and they were going, oh, we'll go sell it to the people in Jerusalem. <laughs> so they were hauling it into Jerusalem and selling on the Sabbath. Not that they cared. They, they, they weren't even Jews. They didn't care if they sold on the Sabbath. But Nehemiah is saying, this is God's city. We're supposed to be following God's rules. So he, his answer to this was to close the gates. Friday night, as the sun's going down, he locked the gates. And he didn't open the gates until Saturday night when the sun went down. Because remember, the Jews count the day as starting at sunset. And the sunset, what we would call the day before, <laughs> to sunset of that day is a day. So they go evening <coughs> to evening. And most Gentiles, we go morning to morning, not evening to evening. So he locked the gates. He says, okay, we got a problem. People are buying and selling. We're going to lock the gates. 
and nobody's coming in. And we see, what did the merchants do? They, they had traveled a long way. So they said, okay, we'll just sit here and wait till they open the gates. We're just going to sit here until they open the gates and then we'll, then we'll go in. They, they fully expected at some time during the daylight hours, the gates would be open. Because that's what the cities did. You locked your gates at night, you opened them in the morning. And they probably thought the guards were being lazy or whatever, not opening the gates, you know, just so they were sitting out there. Well, they'll open the gates eventually and then we'll go in. Because they didn't understand, they may not have even understood the Sabbath because they haven't been keeping it. The Jews haven't been keeping it at this point, so they probably didn't understand it themselves. And it's kind of surprising because the Jews have usually kept the Sabbath. That's the one commandment that they pretty much have kept very well over their existence. They haven't kept most of God's other commandments all that well, but the Sabbath is one that they've kept. And even in, to this day in Israel, the Sabbath is pretty well kept by the Jews. Uh, they may, may not believe in God or do believe in God, but they're Jews and they decide we're not going to work on this day. The businesses will be closed. Uh, the Arabs nowadays will open their businesses, but the Jews don't open their business. And they do all kinds of things to make sure that they're not violating the Sabbath. Uh, you go to a good Jewish uh, establishment that has multiple floors and an elevator, the elevator stops at every floor on the Sabbath day because uh, you can't push the button. <laughs> so it stops at every floor. So if you've got to go up 30 or 40 flights, you've got a long trip ahead of you. Uh, but this is where they're at. He's saying, you're violating, you're violating one of the most important things that we do. You're working on the Sabbath. And he puts a stop to it. He tells the people there to stop. He tells the Jewish people that, you know, Jews, you've got to stop because it's the Sabbath. And they've been pretty good about this revival. They read the Word of God and they got convicted. They got rid of the foreign wives. They had the, the Feast of the Tabernacles that we talked about. They went up and they did their celebration that was heard afar off. He got rid of the foreign wives on their own. On their own. And now he's going, uh, okay, you got rid of the foreign wives. That's great. Let's now get honoring God on the Sabbath. They were closing the gates. He then, and then he literally threatened all the people that were sitting outside the gate, don't come again, or we're basically says we're going to forcibly get rid of you. Yeah. Nehemiah is quite an interesting character. He's not afraid of confrontation. He knows that the king is on his side. He knows God. He's following God's laws. And when Samvelid and Tobiah were challenging him, he had no problem calling them out. You know, he is a good leader. He doesn't, he's not afraid of men. He says, he says what he needs to say and he moves forward in what he's doing. And when he, when he sees something wrong, he takes decisive action. You know, he went out, he saw the gates needed to be fixed, he told everybody to fix, and the walls needed to be fixed, and he told everybody to fix the wall that's closest to your home. And we talked about that when we first started there. It was a great decision. What part of the city are you going to be most interested in making sure is secure? The part that's closest to your home. So he made them fix those up and guard, and they were responsible for the guarding of their area. If they heard a trumpet, they were to go, you know, a, a, a warning trumpet, they were to go to that part, but you were, you were to guard your own part of the wall. You were, and it made a lot of sense, because that was the side you were most interested in. Is my home safe? Now, if they get into the other side, your, your, your home wasn't safe, but at least you had time to get to where they were. And he made all these good decisions with people. 
and he didn't let Tobiah and Sanballat <coughs> stop him. He didn't, he didn't let them come in and, and, and work with them. He didn't let them do any of this stuff. He's getting rid of the mixed marriages. He's on all of this, this stuff. And here he is with the Sabbath. You are honoring the Sabbath, and I'm going to make sure you honor the Sabbath because I'm not going to let the, I'm not going to let the merchants in the city. And so we see that going on. Verse 23, And in those days I saw Jews that had married wives of Astod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spoke half in the speech of Ashad and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each person. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters and your sons, nor take their, their daughters for, unto your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. Shall we then hearken unto you all this great evil to transgress against the Lord your God in marrying strange wives? So now he's turning his attention to those who had not got rid of their wives. And we see the problem with this. It says in verse 24, And their children spoke half of Ashdod and could not speak the language of the Jews. They were not, these children of mixed marriages were not being raised up as Jews, basically. And this is the problem we find even to this day. When somebody marries a non-Christian or a Jew marrying a non-Jew, how are their children raised? And it's always a contention. Do you raise them up? You know, I'm going to stick with Christians for us. Do we raise them as Christians or do, or does the parent who's not a Christian influence the decision and say, and usually you'll hear something stupid like, well, we'll just let them decide when they get older. Well, the problem with that statement is if we don't influence them into the right, the world is going to influence them with the hundreds of other choices that are wrong. And, and the parent is responsible for where the, what their children decide. And it's critical. I have seen it over and over again where, well, we just, you know, we're going to let the decide, you know, child decide. And I've even heard Christians say this when both of them are supposed to be Christians. Well, we're just not going to force our Christian child into being a Christian. We're going to let them decide whatever they want. Well, let's see. I'm going to give them three glasses. Two of them have poison in them, and one has a real drink in it, something healthy for them. And I'm just going to let them pick whatever they want. I don't care. Same logic. <laughs> you know, I don't want to influence them. It might, you know, they, they, you know, I'll just let them drink something that's going to send them to hell. <laughs> that makes no sense to me in any way, shape, or form. If you don't believe in Christianity well enough to say that my children are going to be Christian, uh, I'm going to do my best to get my children to be Christian, you've got a problem. And here's what was going on with them. Okay. Oh, well, well you know, we're, you know, I, we're, we live in Jerusalem, we're Jews, but, uh, you know, your mom, your mom believes in worshiping uh, Baal, so if you want to worship Baal, we don't care. <laughs> you know, he's an idol, you know, you'll go to hell for worshiping him, but we don't care what you what you do. This is a really bad place. And for us as Christians, we need to make sure that we're training up our children in Christianity. Can we make them become Christians? Absolutely not. 
But my kids, when they were growing up, they went to church. It wasn't a question. Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, we're going to church. Don't tell me that you don't want to go. I don't care if you don't want to go. You're in my house, and I took your, uh, Joshua's commandment. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Whether they wanted to or not did not matter to me. Because God said to raise them up in the nurture and admiration of the Lord, and I wanted to raise them up that way. And when I got told by people, well, you're not giving them choice, I go, well, you're right, I'm not. <laughs> doesn't hurt my feelings that they don't have a choice. They have a choice. When they leave my house, they have a choice. They can continue following God the way they were taught, or they can turn away from him. Unfortunately, two of my kids turned away from him. One returned, and one is looking like he's returning. We'll see. <laughs> But here it says the children of these mixed marriages, they weren't even able to speak in the Hebrew language. They were being taught whatever language it was that they were, the marriage was that they were with. And they couldn't speak in the Hebrew. And this is a serious issue. If they weren't being taught Hebrew, they definitely weren't being taught the laws of God. And they weren't being able to read the scriptures because they weren't being taught the Hebrew language and therefore there's no way they could practice correctly so this is the problem we see even today with mixed marriages and those who have had mixed mixed religious marriages know the problems uh, do I you know do I raise them as a Jew or a Christian do I raise them up as a as a pagan or a, or a Christian you know whatever whatever the the mixed is it's how do we handle this and, but that is why Paul said, don't be unequally yoked. And God has said it every place in the scripture, too. Uh, he talked about it in Joshua 23, Deuteronomy 7. Well, even in Genesis, Abraham told his servant, I don't want Isaac marrying one of these he, uh, heathen women in Canaan. Go back home and find somebody who worships basically worships the one God and bring that person to Isaac. Don't let him marry these people. And again, Abraham understood. I'm following one God. And he might have understood that Isaac, you know, because we look at Isaac's life, he wasn't a very strong <laughs> image and father. And so he's probably realizing that Isaac is not strong, but he doesn't want him to be mixed. He's, he's realizing that if he got married to one of these people that had Astora and, and Baal and, and Moloch and all these other gods in that area that he probably would worship those gods with his, with his wife. So he's saying, go get somebody who's going to be one god. You know, and he brings him Rebecca. Okay? And then Rebecca, partially to save Jacob from his brother, sends him back there. But the, but the logic she uses is, I don't want him marrying one of these Canaanite women. Send him back home so he can find one that worships God. So we see this all the way back into Genesis. We see this mentality of do not be unequally yoked. We can go further back to the days of Noah where it says that the sons of God and the daughters of, of men were coming together. Now there's a lot of people who believe that the sons of God were angels. I don't buy into that. Uh, I believe that it was the righteous line of Seth meeting up with the unrighteous line of, of Ham and, and Shem. Uh, or Japheth rather, and uh, 
uh, DSF, excuse me, you know, the righteous line and the unrighteous line mixing and, and pulling away from God. That's my belief. Because I don't believe that angels can have children with, with humans because they're different kinds. Uh, so, but we see it all the way back into that period of time where we had mixed marriages producing people who were disobedient to God. Been a problem from as far back as we can remember and still is a problem. And Satan loves to get mixed marriages. Not races, but mixed religious views. Followers of God with non-followers of God. And we've said it over and over again, the non-followers of God usually drag down the follower of God. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say, well, I know they're not saved, but I'm sure I can get them saved and then they'll be a Christian. No, it doesn't. I mean, it has worked maybe one in a hundred or one in a thousand times, but most of the time, 99% of the time, the lost person drags the Christian into the mud, not the other way around. The, the Christian doesn't usually drag the lost person out of the mud. And you're better off holding off a marriage. If you really think you're going to get saved, hold off on marriage until they get saved and prove that it's real. Because I've also seen the case where somebody says a prayer just so they could get the girl or the guy and you know, pretend to be married, you know, pretend to be a Christian for a couple months and they get married and then they drag them down. So here we are, he's saying, you're getting these mixed marriages and these kids aren't even being raised as Jews. And I can understand that was angering him. And it says, he contended with them, he cursed some of them or made them despicable. He smote some of them, which means to scourge. This other one I don't quite understand. He plucked the hair out of their hair, uh, 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 plucked off their hair. I, I can't understand that one, but it's the same word as Jesus having his beard pulled out of his, out of his face in Isaiah 53. And it's very violent, very hurting. <laughs> um, and he made him swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters unto your, their sons, or take their daughters unto your sons. So he's, he's being very strong. He's going back into all the scriptures that we mentioned. You know, uh, Deuteronomy said don't do it. Uh, Genesis said don't do it. Joshua said don't do it. Uh, many of the prophets said don't do it. And here they are doing it. And then he uses Solomon as, as their example. He says Solomon, the very wise king, was led into idolatry by his wives. And if you remember, this would be back into 1 Kings chapter 11, where it starts talking about Solomon and his wives. 700 wives, 300 concubines. He just had too many women. You know, he saw a woman he liked, he married her. <laughs> Some of them were married for, you know, diplomatic reasons. You know, it's, we're going to join our kingdoms together and, okay, Solomon, take my daughter and that'll link us up to my family. So he had a lot of those kind of marriages. And basically the women come up and Solomon, you know, you've got your temple, but you don't really love me because I don't have a temple for my God. And they started building temples for them. And then probably came along, you know, Solomon, you've been worshiping, you know, in your temple, but you've never been in my temple to worship. You know, it doesn't say that, but I'm sure that's what happened to him. You know, hey, you know, you never, you never come and come where I'm at, you know, would you? And before long, he's left God. And this is, he's using Solomon as their example. You know, Solomon did this, and it says, Nevertheless, even he 
did outlandish, and it's better translation here is foreign or strange, stranger, strange women, you know, not, not Jews, led him astray. They caused him to sin. So he's, they're looking at, he's saying, hey, you know, you think you can get away with it. Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived, couldn't do it. Why do you think you could do it? And that was his point. You know, that was his point that he was making. Solomon, you know, the wisest king that has ever lived, and that's what it says in the scriptures, that he was the wisest that ever ruled or ever will rule. Okay, he knew, he had knowledge on every topic, it is said. You know, people would come to him for their answers to anything. And it said he understood farming and, and planting and, and animal, you know, we would say zoology, uh, husbandry. You know, he knew... He, he was, a, he was the, ja the jack-of-all-trades uh, type person to go to, but yet he really knew it. He was the expert at all, all disciplines. And they, he's going, hey, Solomon couldn't do it, but what makes you think you can, can do it? And that would make a great point. If the wisest person who's ever lived can't get away with it, why do you think you can do it? And very important for this to see that. And this is what he said. Shall we hearken unto you this, to do this great evil and transgress against our God by marrying strange wives? And he brought it to the very extent is who you're disobedient, disobedient to and who you're hurting, you're transgressing against God. And this is something we have to understand. All sins are against God. Even if I hurt somebody in the process, the sin is against God. I've hurt them probably emotionally, physically, whatever else, but the sin is against God. And God will discipline them. But he's saying, you're hurting God through this. You're being disobedient to God. You've got this strange wife, they're destroying you. But the one you've sinned against is God. And he's telling them, get going with it. Get correct. Verse 28, and one of the sons of Jedidiah, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horite. Therefore, I chased him from me. So he's, this goes back to what he started on. He got rid of Sam, uh, got, uh, um, okay, excuse me, his son-in-law of Sanballat. That's the other bad guy that was been er earlier in the book. Sanballat and Tobiah. So now he's getting rid of the high priest's son because he married a, he married, not only married a foreign woman, but he married the daughter of one of the enemies <laughs> of the foreign woman. Again, creating this tie to the inner circle, the inner place of the Jerusalem. And I'm sure, you know, hey, son-in-law, the father-in-law has, has got to come and visit once in a while. They, they probably had kids. They, they had grandchildren for him. And anybody who's been a grandparent knows that they want to go see the grandkids once in a while. So I'm sure Sam Bella was saying, hey, let me in. I'm going to go visit my grandkids. I'm going to visit my daughter. So the one who's supposed to be not allowed in Jerusalem is coming into Jerusalem. <laughs> or, or at least being hearing news as they go see him. And so he's clearing, he's again, he's putting him out. He's chased him out. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Again, the Levites were not supposed to mix any. They really weren't supposed to mix because they were supposed to keep the tribe of Levite pure. 
because the Levites were the ministers in the, in the tabernacle, in the temple. The priests were supposed to do the same thing. The priests weren't supposed to marry outside of the Levitical family just because it was to be kept pure so that you didn't have this intermixing of, you know, you weren't even, they weren't even allowed to marry outside to the other tribes because that would bring the other tribes into the priesthood and that was to be not happening. Thus I cleansed them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priest of the Levites, everyone his own business. So he goes, he put people in charge of different things, just as they were supposed to. The, the tribe of Asaph, the, the family of Asaph and, and all, and, uh, were the singers. They put the people in charge of the places that they were supposed to be in charge of because they were getting sloppy. They were mixing up. And it says, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits, remember me, O God, for good. And we're at the end of Nehemiah. He, he organized everything. He put everything back in place. And again, at this point, he's probably very concerned, you know, because it, this obviously, because it's the end of the book, is also where he's going, my, my, my service is over. I'm, I'm laying everything in line. I'm putting all the ducks in the row. I'm putting the pieces in place. God, help them keep it good. Because at this point, he probably went back to Artaxerxes, retired from the governor of Jerusalem, and said, okay, I've put everything in place. Keep it. Keep going oh, forward. And again, this is what leaders did. Paul would do this all through the book of Acts. He would start these churches. He would appoint pastors and, and bishops and leaders, and then he'd go to the next city. Then he'd write them lots of letters, which turned out to be most of the New Testament, saying, hey, I've been hearing this about you, and I've been hearing this about you. Uh, get it corrected. But his job was to get it started, move on. Get it started, move on. Here Nehemiah spent a lot of his life getting Jerusalem under control. And this last space, and it ends, so apparently he's gone back. He's, gone, he's either retired or he's gone back, uh, died, whatever the case is. He put all the pieces back in the row and he goes, okay, second time I've done this, keep it right. Keep it right. Now we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we've had of looking at your word. We ask that you help us to keep our lives right. Help us to make good, godly decisions. Help us to become leaders and help those others to, to get in that same place. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.